Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani and this is episode number 10 with Dr. Mari Quatnin. She is an Australian coral reef scientist but also does spatial work and also does cyclone research and also does this amazing outreach program um, where she talks about coral reefs and so I've just re-listened to this conversation that we had and it just is so to me it was so astounding I loved talking to her and just I learned a lot about coral reefs which I didn't know much about um I learned well and we talked about the similarities between coral reefs and wetlands and the environmental services they provide like uh, absorbing wave impact and providing habitat for fisheries things like that and it's just a really great conversation so that I hope that you enjoy all of this and then go hang out on my Twitter because I have all kinds of resources to share about all of the amazing things she talks about um, so enjoy this story about uh, coral reefs and cyclones okay so my name's Mari Poitnin uh i at the moment my job title is spatial ecological data scientist which sounds very fancy and i have to say that as a geographer um i often didn't think of myself truly as a scientist because that word connotates a lab coat and you know Bunsen burners or <laughs> at least um, going out in the field or doing some kind of experiments, which I don't get to do that often. Um, but once it was in my job title, I was like, wow, I'm a scientist now. Um, so my research area is looking at disturbances and how they interact to affect the um, well-being of coral reefs. So most people would be aware that uh, the oceans are warming at an unprecedented rate from um, global heating. Uh, too much carbon dioxide is accumulating in the ocean um, and that's causing all kinds of trouble for marine life, including um, changing the pH of the ocean to make it more acid, which we call ocean acidification. And that threatens coral reefs because they make a stony skeleton out of calcium carbonate, which is harder to do in an acid environment. But it also threatens the very basis of the entire ocean food chain because you have microscopic organisms floating in the water that also use calcification um, and everything relies upon those at the base of the food chain. But in the more immediate future and present, um, coral reefs are also threatened when sea temperatures are too high for too long. Um, so coral reefs have uh, a symbiotic algae that lives inside their tissues that gives them their beautiful color. Um, believe it or not, coral reefs are made up of millions of tiny little animals that make their own coral skeleton, as I said, that are called coral polyps, but their bodies um, are actually transparent. You can see through their tissues. 
And so it's only when they're filled with billions of these photosynthetic algae that they have a color. But these algae, which are called zooxanthellae, uh, they are really sensitive to heat, so to temperature. So when they do the chemical reactions that um, create photosynthesis, so they take the sun's light with carbon dioxide and then turn that into sugar to feed the coral, if it's too hot for too long above what they're used to, then free radicals are produced in that reaction and that damages the coral and the coral spit them out and they turn white and that's coral bleaching. So coral bleaching is a major threat to coral reefs because it occurs over vast spatial scales over a short period and it's starting to happen so frequently that there's not enough time to recover in between. So what I look, I don't study coral bleaching, I study the impact uh, of um, cyclones on coral reefs. So cyclones have been a disturbance that's affected coral reefs for millennia and coral reefs are still here. So um, they have been able to recover from those events. But when you superimpose wave damage from cyclones with this increasing frequency of coral bleaching and then throw in all the other stressors that can happen like poor water quality, oil spills, predation from um, things like thorn starfish, then you start to have a problem. So we can't do anything to prevent cyclones, but what we can do is um, understand the spatial and temporal patterns of when cyclones are likely to occur at different reefs around the world and how that's changing under global change. And then when we think about conservation activities to reduce other stresses on them, uh, we can make sure that we take into account what they're likely to cop from cyclones. And also when people think about reef restoration, where they go and try and rehabilitate small areas on reefs, they might, it's important to know patterns of cyclone activity because you wouldn't want to spend millions of dollars rehabilitating a site only to have picked one that's regularly smashed by waves. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in this topic because coral reefs are amazing and I don't want them to go extinct, which is a real possibility. But as a geographer, it's very fascinating and difficult topic because um, whether or not a particular reef or a part of a reef, like a colony on a reef, gets damaged from a particular cyclone is really patchy. And the closer you zoom in, at finer spatial scales, the more interesting complexity you find. So from that perspective, it's kind of like um, picking the trickiest possible topic. <laughs> I'm a masochist, I think. I was really good at English. I could have just, you know, done something I was better at than delving it because I've got one foot in meteorology, but I'm not a meteorologist uh, and, you know, fluid dynamics and all this mathematics. <laughs> and then the other foot's in coral reef ecology, but I'm not an ecologist. Um, <laughs> so it's quite interesting when you look at how people model cyclones, there's a real continuum. So you've got numerical modelers who work at NOAA, um, 
or the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia who, um, you know, resolve what the cyclone's doing uh, with detailed physics and fancy math and they run, you know, wave models and wind models and whatever. Then on the other end of the continuum, you have coral reef biologists and ecologists who will say, oh, look, there was a cyclone track and it was kind of within this distance of my site and I see these impacts, therefore the cyclone did it. And so what I try to do is provide something in between those two extremes. To do the gold standard fancy modeling isn't possible for most of the coral reefs around the world, uh, especially in the past, uh, where we don't have the data that you have to plug into those models. Um, but we can do better than just wildly guessing as well. So my role is to develop relatively simple models that approximate what the fancier models would tell us and to try and understand um, where the simpler models are failing and you need to, it's justified to try and do the detailed model if you can and where they're good enough. Because one thing I've learned from Homeward Bound is don't let the perfect get in way get in the way of the good and otherwise you never do anything or produce anything so trying to dial back on the perfectionism and provide something that moves us forward um, in some way so the other dimension to that um, it's obvious that cyclones generate big waves that can smash up coral reefs which is why it's important to know where they're happening. But what I didn't mention was that cyclones are really interesting because they actually can help coral reefs swell if the timing is right. So if you've got, um, you've had a period of time, let's say on the Great Barrier Reef where the water temperatures have been much hotter than normal, well, at least one degree Celsius hotter than normal, if that persists for at least four weeks, in a row um, there's a chance that the corals might start bleaching and we say they're under thermal stress so if a cyclone happens to come along when this thermal stress is going down um, the winds generate waves that actually churn up the water column and if the water is deep enough that there's a reservoir of cooler water trapped underneath then that churning up of the water column can bring that cool water to the surface and it can actually cool the sea surface temperature and i think the that can i think the most cooling that anyone's reported in the literature from a cyclone was 10 degrees celsius but usually around it's yeah usually around reefs it's less uh but it's sufficient to um lower thermal stress enough to um, uh, reduce the magnitude and the duration of bleaching. And there was a study in 2007 in the Caribbean that showed that. Uh, and my former PhD student and I then um, did spatial modeling across the entire Caribbean, Caribbean in two um, seasons where thermal stress was high and we showed that the hurricane activity um, in those seasons, we mapped how much of a difference it made to what the thermal stress was. So in the, at the moment, we're in the process of reconstructing the cooling from 
all the world's cyclones from 1985 to 2017. So we already did it from 85 to 2009 as part of his thesis, but obviously 2016 and, uh, and 17 were big time um, data points in the world's coral bleaching and thermal stress. So, and new better data sets have come out. So we're redoing it. So this is a cautionary tale to all you scientists out there. <laughs> Publish your work before it's superseded and you have to redo it before you can it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so that's the other component that I'm interested in. So it, this all varies spatially, which is why it's interesting. Um, some places are more prone to being helped by cyclone cooling because they have the right oceanography. They have the reservoirs of deep water that can be brought up. Um, and so uh, it's useful for conservation of reefs to understand where are these places that could benefit from cyclones and then also to reconstruct the damage patterns and see, you know, are there places where they get cooling, but it happens in such a way that they don't also get smashed up. So, yeah. And then the other yeah dimension. that's a very fine balance there isn't it between you don't want them smashed but you don't want them to be overheated exactly that's um a fine line right there so one of the promising things that i've just been uh, working on uh, a group of us over here in australia are just about to put in a grant application to um look at developing a cloudiness climatology for the Great Barrier Reef. Because what has been suggested is that even if a cyclone is really far away, like Cyclone Winston out in the Coral Sea by Fiji, it was 450 kilometers away from the Great Barrier Reef, but it's been suggested that the cloudiness associated with it um, may have cooled the Southern Great Barrier Reef and that's why it didn't bleach in 2016. So this grant application would actually quantitatively model that rather than just saying it and assuming that it's so. Uh, it would be good to actually test that quantitatively because if it is true that that can happen, um, then that's your best case scenario for a cyclone or a hurricane. Uh, not close enough to build big waves, but shading you out. Yeah, so you mentioned 2016 and Cyclone Winston, and I'm a bit in the dark about what happened then 2016 or and or 2017. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm in my coral reef bubble here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, that was just one of the first things that popped up because I was like, I know what happened here in 2016 and it wasn't good, but I don't know what happened there in 2016. That sounds like it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, so what happened was uh, much of the northern Great Barrier Reef experienced thermal stress for unprecedented amounts of time. So I mentioned that if the um, the, uh, the uh, sea surface temperature is more than one degree Celsius warmer than it normally is in a place um, for more than four weeks, you can start to get the corals spitting out their 
um, algae partner and starving to death. But that happened. But in some places, uh, there were degree, they call it degree heating weeks, um, how long the hot water has persisted. So four degree heating weeks is bad. At eight degree heating weeks, you expect to start to see coral death. But there were degree heating weeks well in excess of that in the northern GBR. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, Terry Hughes, who's a very well-known coral reef ecologist who's an advocate for reducing carbon emissions to save coral reefs, he, and he runs the, the Center for Excellence for um, Coral Reef Science out of James Cook University. Um, I went to his talk last year and he was talking about how some corals actually just, they didn't get a chance to starve to death or to spit out their zooxanthellae because the water was so hot that they literally cooked in place. But the big story was um, that the very next year, there was another big thermal stress event and a mass bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. And that wasn't predicted to occur. They call that back-to-back -back bleaching. Uh, having two in a row like that wasn't predicted to occur for decades later than that. So it was a big wake-up call uh, to the world coral reef community that, you know, the, this imminent threat to coral reefs is really right here, right now. Uh, and they did, Terry Hughes and his group and other people did extensive surveys um, and found massive coral losses um, throughout the northern and part of the central GBR. So where Winston comes in in 2016 is that there wasn't those losses in the southern GBR and there was Winston out there. By the time Winston tracked over the Great Barrier Reef, it was decayed. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I looked at the data, because I was, I was really excited thinking, oh yeah, because you know, we have this method for mapping cool wakes and you know, I can be on the paper in Science or Nature or wherever it was published. <laughs> And there can be a figure showing the cool wake and how Winston saved the GBR. And when I looked at the timing of it, the time that it cooled was way, way, way before Winston was anywhere near the GBR. Um, so that was frustrating because I couldn't quickly then produce anything because it was a whole new research area that needed investigation. So, but it's a good thing because as you mentioned before, it's a, a best case scenario for a cyclone because it didn't damage anything. So yeah, that, um, all around the world, coral reefs bleached during uh, 2015, 16 and 17 um, as part of this just massive, event where sea surface temperatures were elevated around the world. The other thing to direct the listener to is the IPCC 1.5 degree report. In chapter three, there's a really amazing diagram and I can send it to you if you want to um, post it, um, where it shows different ecosystems around the world. And on the vertical axis uh, of the graph, it gives you that what the average earth temperature is. Um, so as you move up, the average earth temperature compared to pre-industrial gets higher and higher. And um, the color, each ecosystem is represented by a bar, like a bar on a bar chart. 
So, and the color of that bar changes as you move up in the average Earth's temperature and the colors tell you the risk. So for coral reefs, already at one degree above, which is where we roughly are, um, the color is like this deep red danger color um, and it indicates severe risk. And then when you get, and it's at the edge of going to this like magenta, dark magenta like um, color. And when you get to that, that risk becomes potentially irreversible. So for coral reefs, they talk about in that report already under extreme stress. And if we reach and exceed 1.5 degrees, which is a tough ask to do, mm -hmm. um, but if we don't meet that, then 99% um, of the world's coral reef area could be essentially gone in the way that we know them now. Uh, there'll still be something there, but it won't provide the same ecosystem services that coral reefs provide now, like shoreline protection, nurseries for fish, mm -hmm. reservoirs of biodiversity, etc. So, mm. uh, that's depressing the end. <laughs> um, while you were talking about this, we don't, so we have some reefs in the Gulf of Mexico. They're not, I guess, like famous, you know, like the Great Barrier Reef or anything. And they're not vast and extensive, but there's some like around Florida and off of Texas and stuff. But what we do have, and this story seems to be very parallel, like between coral reefs, and Louisiana's coastal wetlands, which is my sort of um, wheelhouse, like it seems to be very similar situations. Like wetlands provide all these ecosystem services. They're at risk because of rising sea levels and hurricanes, which, you know, hurricanes or cyclones are basically the same. Yeah. And then like all of this, but it's just like a different ecosystem, but suffering like pretty much all the exact same things essentially uh it's the parallels were are remarkable i didn't know that much about coral reefs and i'm just like yeah that's happening in the wetlands yeah it's happening in the wetlands oh okay uh, okay yeah i had no idea yes um, yeah so there's a lot of people around the world um who love coral reefs and are desperate to want to save them um and so there's a lot of work going on to um develop methods to try and make reefs more resilient so part of it comes down to oh um, they call it assisted evolution where in the lab you know just like you do with plants and and whatever you try and breed a uh, plant that makes a fruit without seeds or whatever so they try and breed corals um that can better handle the heat stress um yeah, and then um, that ties into reef restoration efforts, which uh, try to rehabilitate reefs that are damaged. And this is all really important and really good. We need it because there's so much warming already baked into the climate system that even if we went to zero emissions today, which would be wonderful, um, there's still gonna be continued impacts so, so we need tools to help reefs recover once the climate has stabilized. And I'm assuming with stubborn optimism here that it's gonna stabilize at a level where uh, it's possible for coral reefs to exist. 
So it's very important, but it can, it's only one component because when you think about it and you look into how it works, you are talking about, uh, like, let's take the Great Barrier Reef, 340,000 square kilometers, 3,000 reefs. Um, so if you're taking little bits of coral and sticking them back on there, like there's no way you can do it everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and you won't, if you start getting back to black bleaching year, every single year, you won't be able to put them back fast enough. Like this spatial and temporal scales, like it just doesn't work, which is where the other area of my research that I'm advocating is, if we're going to do coral reef restoration now or in the future after the climate stabilizes and we know we can only do it at local scales, then we really need to be um, cognizant of where we put it, mm -hmm. as I mentioned before. So, yeah, so that's reminiscent slash parallel of what's happening in Louisiana as well, because we have this big master plan and they've prioritized restoration projects based on all of these complex models that I don't understand. But they're yep. kind of doing the same thing because some areas are going to be like more bang for your buck or like last longer or be more effective than some other areas. So they're just like prioritizing what's going to be the most effective and like the lo longest term solution, I guess, which it sounds oh. like what would need to happen for reef restoration as well. Yeah, so yeah. I'd love you could point me to some studies that explain how they're making those decisions because this isn't something that I am aware is really happening that much yet in coral reef restoration. So it sounds like people have really developed that in uh, wetlands restoration. So yeah, they have. Oh, yeah. great. So that my follow-up question to that was, so all of the data for our, our wetlands master plan projects, models, and all stuff like that comes from monitoring data. And I know that there's, you know, like reef check stuff done, but is there any like systematic organized monitoring, I guess, or like health checks or something that you know of? Well, there's an effort underway to map all the world's coral reefs by the University of Queensland using remote sensing paired with um, in-situ observations by divers. Um, and um, yeah, there's the reef check program where volunteers um, go in and monitor. Individual countries have their own monitoring program. So I work at the Australian Institute of Marine Science and we have a long-term monitoring program that goes back decades on the Great Barrier Reef. That's cool. There's individual universities that do monitoring like um, Terry Hughes's group. Uh, there's a thing called Coral Base, I think used to be called where it tries to um, report on where all this data is all around the world so that people can find it. Yeah. But yeah, one of the things with coral monitoring is it's expensive. Sure, um, yeah. So one of the things that people are working on, in fact, uh, my office mate here at Ames, um, Matt Wyatt, is working on this, which is, um, trying to use machine learning um which are like computer algorithms you can train to analyze the data so if we 
we could go and send a bunch of divers out, um, which we do on the Great Barrier Reef, but in Western Australia, it's too dangerous. So we do underwater video. Um, so you get real time video back to the ship, but also pictures of the seafloor. Um, and then a benthic ecologist has to sit there and analyze bucket loads of these images <laughs> that it takes really long. So these, these uh, machine learning algorithms can be trained to um, do that much more quickly. So um, there's a big project that we've got going on called Reef Cloud that Matt is leading uh, that's attempting to scale up those kind of systems so that it can be used all over the world and then put into a publicly available data set um, so that you can have real-time monitoring uh, um, at a much lower cost but yeah. you know it'll never be perfect you'll still need some input from the benthic ecologists for the depending on how detailed you want to know about the corals like if you want to go down to species then there's no way the computer can do that <laughs> yeah there's always going to be some sort of level of like ground truthing or whatever you know uh, at some point yeah so i was just curious because the, what i do is monitoring uh -huh. for all the plan models and so and all that data is public and so i was just curious if there was like a similar system and it sounds like there's similar work being done but maybe it's not all pulled together in one central system but that's really yeah that's really interesting uh the parallels i find that really intriguing yeah it's it's interesting because the way things are going now um the pressure is to make all data available but you can have sympathy for people that have run these long-term monitoring programs because it's a bucket load of investment mm -hmm. and for the scientists that run it like they spend the bulk of their time on the logistics mm -hmm. of collecting this data yes. and then to just give it to everyone before they even get to publish out of it is uh you know it doesn't the way the scientific system is set up science in general is set up it doesn't cater well with the how the incentives work to just do that out of the goodness of your heart because you're prepared right. getting papers and whatnot so but yeah no i totally understand uh it's a little different because the state of louisiana is paying for it and then they're not doing any research necessarily with that data but it's available for people to use and so there's probably 50 or 60 papers a year that come out using that available data. Yeah. So they're doing all this cool research, which Louisiana then takes and uses to like, okay, see, this is all the other reasons why we're going to keep doing this. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but it's, it's, you know, government paying for it, not a researcher on their own. So it's a little bit different, but yeah. But yeah, you, and I'm, my career is not reliant on me publishing papers, luckily. Um, I would never <laughs> survive. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it would never work if just like one person did all this data and then gave it away for free. Like, it's yeah, not well, I mean, sustainable, for AIMS, really. We are, a, we are a federally funded government agency. So, you know, there's, there is that funding. It's not like, 
the long-term monitoring program is um, run by someone at a university who has to get right, grants yeah. to do it. Yeah. But still, um, even given that, like to be employable within the agency, you still need to be producing the scientific outputs, but not to the, maybe not to the same extreme as if you were in a university. Um, and we're competitive with each other for leading projects and um, what they call appropriation funds. So if an industry partner isn't paying for the project you're doing, um, then, and it comes out of our internal allocation of money, then, uh, you know, you're competitive with everyone else in the Institute for that money. But yeah, I think eventually it'll get to the same place as what you're describing. Yeah. What I, the project I work on is a bit, it's unusual for sure. And it's very progressive for the state of Louisiana, which is usually not progressive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just like surprisingly forward-looking thing that we have um but it's yeah it's tricky because i think that the coastal master plan is awesome but i also think that we're gonna have like a reckoning at some point because we're not everything can be saved or restored or whatever and so they're gonna have to make bigger decisions on mm. what to restore or save. Um, yeah. And that's going to be hard because I think there's people that live there and there's people's livelihoods. And I think it's going to be a whole, a whole process. And it's not going to be, it's going to be very complicated. And there's going to be a lot of anger and a lot of sadness and mm. all, by on all sides, I think. Uh, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. But I feel yeah. like it's coming. It's, that's an interesting dimension of the whole thing. Um, because when you think about being a scientist, you kind of get trained to be dispassionate mm -hmm. um, and remove your emotions from thinking about it. But uh, last year in June, I took three days off and went over to Brisbane because I'm in Perth, which is on the west coast of Australia. But I, I went over to Brisbane on the east coast because Al Gore was in Australia um, running a training program for his climate reality project. Mm -hmm. And I went to that after having already done Homeward Bound where it was all uh, a big part of the visibility piece was being in touch with yourself, being visible to yourself. And then I went to that outdoor training and he had all kinds of people speaking who are at the front line of already being dramatically affected by um global heating like people in the Torres Strait and whatever who are watching their land just disappear into the ocean with sea level rise and it became impossible to keep that separation um mm -hmm. and it's been a struggle ever since then to deal with the ecological grief of what we're losing yeah in terms of um, the actual ecosystems, but also uh, the grief about the totally preventable but escalating human suffering. So it's mm -hmm. already happening in lots of places, but when you think, you look at what's gonna happen if we don't do anything, 
um, it's almost unimaginable the immense scale of this human suffering. And um, I listened to this really good podcast. Well, it, it was part of um, Christiana Figueres' um, Outrage and Optimism podcast, but they interviewed this lady in the UK who's um, high up in the Extinction Rebellion. And it was really good because she talked about how you can't really be your most effective self in this issue and bring the most impact to it unless you fully allow yourself to engage with what it means on every level. Mm-hmm. And then she said, even though you, that may cause a, what you could call a dark night of the soul for you where you struggle, it's only from that place um, that you can really find your maximum impact um, and what you should be doing to do something about it. And I thought, oh, that's a relief that that's a good thing. <laughs> that, that can like turn into something powerful from somewhere so dark is I think yeah. helpful because yeah. I'm kind of in a dark place right now. Like, oh God, we're never going to win. <laughs> just, yes. Yeah, it's well, depressing. that's where um, it's useful listening to that podcast, mm-hmm. Outrage and Optimism, because their whole premise is that um, it's an active choice, no matter how dire it looks. So we have to let ourselves take it in so that we feel the outrage, but we can't just let that outrage make us give up and send us into despair. Um, even No matter how hopeless it looks, you can always make the active choice that there is hope and actively not ignoring the reality, but find the piece of it that you can do something about and do it. And because the thing is, um, any incremental change we can make to how hot the earth gets is worth doing. So Absolutely. even if we don't go above, even if we go above 1.5, like it's better to be at 1.6 than at two and so yes. on. So that's a helpful way to, to think about when it feels overwhelming. But yes, as a coral reef scientist, <laughs> it often feels overwhelming. Yeah, same as a wetland scientist. <laughs> Yeah, mm. same. Yes. Um, uh, this is sort of not really a question, but I didn't know that corals are transparent and that they have their little algae buddies that give them color. I had no yeah. idea. So this is one of the totally things that I in my spare time is I think because if people really understand how coral bleaching works, then they're more likely to believe scientists when we tell them about what's going on. So, uh, because, and, and so I do an outreach program for kids and adults called What Do Penguins and Coral Reefs Have in Common? Uh, and it's a really geographical question because it makes to, to think of the answer, you have to think about how the whole earth is interconnected. Everything that happens ha- affects everything that happens everywhere else. Um, so obviously what they have in common is they're under extreme threat already from climate change. So when I started doing that, I thought, oh, I've got to find some way to explain why corals bleach. And I didn't totally know it either, because like I said, I'm not a marine biologist. So. I started delving into it. Um, 
And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so cool because really the question you have to ask is, is a coral reef a rock, an animal or a plant? Um, and then I take the kids through each of those things and we ask questions and collect evidence to try to answer it. So if you look at coral skeletons and I get them to pick them up and feel them and I say, you know, what if you drop that on your foot? Would that hurt? Like, is it hard like a rock would be? And they're like, oh yeah. And I said, what if you ran to a coral reef and smashed your head into it? Like, would that be a good idea? Oh no. Um, <laughs> and then I show them the statistics of how coral reefs at their leading edge block up to 95% of incoming wave energy, which oh, is wow. why they play a huge role in shore vegetation. Yeah, so that kind of make, makes you think, wow, coral reefs must be a rock. They're strong and um, um, can do that. But then I show them uh, a really closely zoomed in photo of a coral colony. And when you look at it, you can see that in amongst the rocky structure, there's, you know, tens of thousands or, or millions of these tiny little animals called coral polyps with little tentacles. They look like anemones. Um, and they're actually living there. Uh, and I say to the kids, how do these tiny, tiny little things like avoid getting swept away? Because when you're in the ocean and a wave comes, like it smashes you, right? Mm -hmm. And these things that can be smaller than your fingernail. Um, and that's where their first superpower comes in, which is they can make their own skeleton. Um, just like a spider spins a web, they, the minute a baby coral lands on something hard, the first thing it does is start squirting out this calcium carbonate to secure itself. And so by working together, these tiny little things actually make entire giant reefs that block huge waves. So that's pretty cool. And then, but that still doesn't answer the question of why they don't like hot water. Uh, and so that moves us to the plant question. Um, and that's when, when I looked into it, I realized, oh, it's these zoosanthellae and they give it the color, but they, the body must be see-through. Otherwise, how could that work? And the reason coral corals turn white when they bleach is because suddenly through their their translucent body you're seeing the skeleton which is white which is underneath so if you ever are swimming around on a reef and you see bright white coral that does not mean it's dead because if it were dead its skeleton would be open and it would look all slimy and brown and green coral is alive and it's attempting to feed itself by catching prey with its tentacles. And so corals can do that, but they usually get 80% uh, or more of their energy from the photosynthesis of their microalgae. And so I get the kids to understand that by, uh, I get them to close their eyes because coral polyps don't have eyes and they have to anchor themselves to the floor um, they're not allowed to jump up because coral polyps don't have legs. And then they wave their tentacles. Sometimes I let them wave their feet as extra tentacles if they want. Um, and I throw out jelly snakes and that's <laughs> the food and they have to try and catch it. And then I tell them, imagine that they go home that night and the entire night, 
they have to wave their tentacles all night and in the morning their parents aren't allowed to give them any breakfast and that's often what it's like for the corals so that's why they can starve to death even though they can feed and then the other thing that i do which is a bit of fun is i have a coral polyp costume <laughs> oh, i love it <laughs> So if you imagine, you know, those little play tunnels that kids crawl through, yeah. they're like a long cylinder. So it's one of those and it's white and it's covered with Velcro. And then um, I wear it. So I'm inside it. And then when I'm a healthy coral, um, it's covered with all different colored patches of fabric, which are my zoosanthelae. So... <laughs> I have a um, fake thermometer and I make it go hot on my fake thermometer and then I'm like, oh, oh, oh no, it's so hot. My cells and belly are hurting me, you know, save me, save me, help me spit them out. And so the kids run up and they tear the all, off all these pieces of fabric and then I'm like, oh, what color am I now? Oh, I'm white, I've bleached. And then I let the water cool down um, because zoosanthelae can recolonize coral polyps if it cools down in time. Um, and then I say, oh, it's nice and cool, but I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm so tired. And then they save me and put my zoosanthelae back on. And it just helps to um, cement the concepts. But going back to what you're saying before, I think that if people understand this whole thing I've just described, then you realize that coral bleaching happens on a coral polyp by coral polyp basis. And then it makes sense that it would be really patchy that one part of a coral colony could be bleached and right next to it, it might not. Or your favorite dive site might be fine, but right nearby it could be bleached. And then if a scientist says half of the Great Barrier Reef bleached and you jump in to the Southern Great Barrier Reef, like one of the politicians in Australia did, and say, oh, it's not bleached, the scientists are lying. People won't be fooled by that. Yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, yeah, that was, okay, first of all, I love your, pro, both, both of those stories, like the program of teaching the kids and the polyp, or the reef costume, it was polyp costume. That's brilliant and I love it. And I wish like that I could be like an eight-year-old and in that and just, I would have loved it. I'd love it now, but <laughs> I think that that's really brilliant. And it probably sticks with those kids, I would imagine. Um, yeah, I well, I, I hope so. Um, I've used it, I used it at the Perth Science Festival last year and my two sons, I've got twin sons who just turned eight. Um, they dressed up in penguin onesies stuffed with pillows so that they could have blubber. Um, and they, I did a stage show and they were my assistants. Um, and then we got a whole bunch of kids up on stage to do the part I described with making me bleach and then saving me. And, and they were like my crowd control directors. But yeah, um, I can give you the link. I actually went on the Australian science show on channel 10 called scope That's cool. um, yeah and they did a little feature and then they took me into the, the green room and we did a time-lapse um bleaching of me and 
<laughs> oh, that's so brilliant. That's like an outreach thing. Yeah. Scene. <laughs> yes, you have to send that to me because I need to watch that. Yeah, and maybe you can post it along. With oh, that. I absolutely will. Yes. But um, yeah, I'm going to be going to the International Coral Reef Symposium uh, in Bremen, Germany in July. And um, I'm hoping that they can find a place in the program somewhere for me to bust out the costume. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I love all the science that you're doing, but I love that that outreach is so, like it's interactive and easy to understand and just like very engaging. And I like that. Like, that's how Thanks. those things need to be. And that's really clever and a really brilliant idea you had. Well, I have to give credit to uh, my colleague Libby Evans Etheridge from Ames. I'm in Perth, she's in Townsville. She came up with the costume. I said I needed a costume and she devised it. It was very clever. Nice, yeah, well done. Yeah, well, I think I do the outreach because it offsets the uh, feeling of hopelessness. Science sure. moves slower um, mm -hmm. and you write papers and you suggest things and then you're, it's kind of out of your control what happens to it. Yeah. Um, and I think kids deserve to know what's happening and what's okay. coming up. Having all these fun interactive things is a way of talking about climate change without scaring them to death mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that science <laughs> and outreach go hand in hand, even if people, one person doesn't do them both, you know? So, cause like, yeah. like I said, science moves really slowly, but outreach can move really quickly and have a broad impact in a relatively short time frame. Um, which is good. Yeah, and I was really excited at the beginning of last year when I got back from Antarctica, I had to give a talk for International Women's Day and I was looking up studies and I found a paper in Nature Climate Change which showed um, that outreach can make a huge difference. So they had a control group which was a school where there was no climate change curriculum and then they had the the treatment group which um, did a climate change program and then they interviewed the parents and the kids before and after this um, program or not a program in the control group and they found um, a statistically significant difference in changes in attitudes when the kids had the control group and the attitudes that changed the most interestingly uh were of super conservative fathers of daughters wow who have been through the program wow like their their attitude and openness to the idea that climate change is happening um completely changed amongst a lot of those but especially for the fathers of daughters that's so that fascinating was but it made me feel better about having some kind of evidence that suggested it makes a difference to talk to kids because it's also uh, easier to talk to kids because they're less entrenched in their opinions. They don't have to pay a mortgage. Um, they're more open to your message. Mm -hmm. They're curious. They're just a pleasure to be around. So I was worried that 
I was just copping out and not having the hard conversations and kind of wasting my energy talking to kids. And that made me realize, no, like it's important to do it. Yeah. And like you said, doing anything is better than doing nothing. Yes. So yeah. Getting started is the hardest part. I yes, find absolutely. I can either do everything or nothing. <laughs> right. And so just do something that's in between, even like you said, if it's not perfect, just, the trying is the first step. And I think that's great. And making it visible because then it inspires other people and yeah. people really get inspired by vulnerability, which is a big piece in the homeward bound program, uh, in our year. And I'm sure it still is. Um, yeah. we think that what is going to make other people like and respect us is to hide our vulnerability and hide the mistakes that we make. But in fact, the number one thing that's relatable and, and uh, makes people like us and feel close to us is to have the courage to show uh, our mistakes and our vulnerability. So it's quite interesting how that works. The whole, I don't know if you've heard of Brene Brown, uh, but you will. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just started all that, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, so it's Very like really powerful. fresh in my mind, yeah. 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 It's an interesting journey, like engaging deeply with that and figuring out how that applies mm -hmm. to you. But with my cyclone research, um, I spent a long time doing it, but flying really well under the radar. Um, and now, because as I mentioned at the beginning, I've got one foot in meteorology, but I'm not a meteorologist. One foot in coral reef ecology, but I'm not a biologist or an ecologist. And I'm trying to offer something in between, but it means I'm never perfect at either of those. So it kind of sets up an automatic imposter syndrome where you're worried that what you're doing's not good enough because it can be attacked on multiple fronts. Um, and I've, I've learned to focus on what it can offer rather than worry that it's not perfect because it will never be. Yeah. I think that's a valuable lesson that me and probably lots of people need to learn. Well, and be kind to yourself because I have yeah. to constantly relearn it. It's a process. <laughs> yeah, it's not of a course. Thing. <laughs> it's a <Right>. journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I have no more questions and I learned a lot about coral reefs today and cyclones and the coral reefs little algae buddies. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, and this is an awesome. <laughs> I can talk about those for days, but I don't think anybody wants to listen for days. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, I thought the parallels were very interesting. So, cause it's, yeah. it's like a, so, you know, wetlands absorb wave action and do all have all the other ecosystem services. They provide nurseries essentially for offshore fishes and it's very similar, but you know, they're obviously different ecosystems, but a lot of the functions are the same, it sounds like, which I would yeah. never have thought of. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating because it like relates to my own heart and my own world, you know. Um, yeah. So, well, thank you. This has been awesome. I don't no, know if there's anything else you need to share, but. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I could endlessly overshare, but we don't want that. 
Well, I think what you shared has been perfect. And I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come talk to me on my podcast and tell me oh. all about coral reefs. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. Um, I think it's an amazing initiative. Good on you. This is part of my Homeward Bound trying to be more visible thing, ah. I guess, because I can only sort of come up with so much to say on my own, I guess. But there's all these cool people out there who do all this cool work and have cool stories. So I can just provide a platform and hope that it connects to somebody to make STEM more relatable and visible. And because STEM is huge, it could be any number of things. And so just sort well, of highlighting all that. You've just um, made me realize something very important about what's going on in your research that's directly applicable to what other people need to be doing in coral reef restoration. So that's very valuable. I'm glad we cool. have that connection. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, so have a good morning and a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Right, so that was uh, Mari's story about coral reefs and cyclones and a whole bunch of other things. It was, it was a lot of information packed into there. So like I said in the intro, definitely go check out my Twitter at Flying Cypress and I will share all kinds of awesome information and resources uh, for y'all to learn more. Um, yeah, I, one of the things that Mari said was don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. So keep that in mind as y'all keep listening to these podcasts because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just shooting for good and awesome stories and awesome people. And maybe we're not always perfect, but we're going to just keep chugging along and doing amazing things. And that's pretty much my plan. Um, so I hope that y'all enjoy this and keep coming back and listening. And if you want to be on the podcast, uh, hit me up on Twitter or on my website, rachelvalani.com, and be in touch because I wanna hear your story and I wanna have you on the podcast. And so just hit me up. Uh, thanks for listening.